God's word says this, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul goes on to say this, Let the the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. We have uh, quite a bit of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to dive right in. I want to prepare your hearts for that. Uh, But as we begin uh, this morning, I have a strong encouragement uh, for each and every one of you today and for myself as I was studying me uh, th- for this sermon uh, this week. I want to encourage you to listen to this sermon with new ears. With new ears. What do I mean by this? You see, if any of you are like me, I'm guilty of when I listen to somebody preaching, I will oftentimes find myself listening with somebody else's ears. What do I mean by that? Okay. Oh, I wish John was here to hear this one. Do you ever find yourself saying that? He could really use this truth, or maybe some of the ladies, my husband really needed to hear this message. I wish he was here this Sunday. Or Susie, my wife really could use a dose of graciousness that's being preached this weekend. All the while we sit and we do not listen to the words of Scripture, the words being preached for ourselves. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we go through and uh, we work our way through this passage, listen for yourself this morning, okay? I call this ownership. Own the passage and what Paul is speaking through these words, what God is saying to you this morning. Think of how this passage affects you. How this passage transforms your behavior and your actions. I want to strongly encourage you, don't think about somebody else. Don't wish that somebody else was here. I believe strongly in the sovereignty of God. God has sovereignly brought you to North Bullet Christian Church this morning to hear this sermon, okay? We good on that? We agree with that? All right, good. Okay. Biblical virtues is the topic of discussion. As the second part of our vices and virtues focus within Colossians, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon online. Uh, Last week, we examined the actions and attitudes that we should avoid in the Christian life. You see, there's things that we should not do as followers of Christ. And Paul outlines those uh, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. There's things that, that we should avoid. This week, we will focus on the virtues of the Christian life. It is vital to the health of our church and the health of your personal relationships that you listen to these virtues and examine your own attitude and actions and look for ways that 
you need to lean into the sanctifying power of the Spirit. So each of you, if you're a follower of Christ, you have the Spirit within you. Lean into that sanctifying power of the Spirit to enlighten you to things that maybe you need to transform or change in your life. Lean into the Word of God and learn from God's Word. Lean into relationships around you and seek out ways that you need to adjust the approach with which you interact with those around you. Does that make sense? Am I getting my point across this morning? So I want you guys to listen. Listen for yourselves. But first off, we want to define exactly what a virtue is, because we might not know what that word means. Here's what a virtue is, if you want to write this down in your notes. A virtue is practical attitudes and habits adopted in obedience to God's Word. Okay? Practical attitudes and habits adopted in obedience to God's Word. So it's not only an outward action, but an attitude that we have within our heart would be a virtue. Okay? Because on the outside, you know, we can drive into church on a Sunday morning and have a screaming match with our wife and our kids. And yet we walk into this building, hey, Keith, how's everything going? Fine. It's good. I just verbally yelled at my children all the way over here, but everything's fine. You get the difference between a virtue is not just an outward attitude, but it's deep within me. It's transforming my heart so that my heart is changed. And then that comes out outwardly. We draw out virtue from the teachings of the Word of God and examples of virtue found within the Bible. The greatest example that we have of virtue is who? Is who? Jesus. Okay, the greatest example that we have is Jesus himself, which has been given to us through his word. His apostles are another great example of virtue. The beauty of looking at the apostles is that they were broken, sinful men. And yet we see the transformation of them through the ministry of Jesus Christ and Him pouring into them as disciples. And then them carrying out, because of their transformation, their spiritual transformation, living what I would call a virtuous life through the proclamation of the gospel to the lost. Another example uh, that we find is by looking in the Old Testament and finding examples of, of virtues there. We find examples of, of virtuous people throughout church history. We see uh, men and women who have stood strong in the face of persecution. We see men and women who have made difficult decisions to at times stand against the church because they felt that God was calling uh, the church to change into a different direction. We saw that in the Reformation with Martin Luther. And lastly... I see this each and every week here at North Bullet Christian Church. We see virtue right here in the body of Christ. We have men and women that we can look to that can help us uh, to learn to be uh, living in light of the virtues that are, are taught in the Word of God. So virtue is practical attitudes and habits adopted in obedience to God's Word. We're going to unpack these virtues this morning in three different segments. Three different segments in our lives. The first one that we're going to focus on is personal virtue. Okay, And I added there, in Christ. 
our personal virtue once we're in Christ. 3.12, the beginning of 3.12 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now, I've instructed the church here a few times, whenever we see that word, therefore, we want to ask the question, what is it therefore? And it's usually spelled out to us prior to that passage. So I want to back up, if you want to look in your Bibles, the beginning of chapter 3. I think Paul's talking in light of the beginning of chapter 3, 1 to 4. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And we can say, therefore, right? Because of what Christ has done, therefore you are this. Letter A, you are this, chosen. Okay, where do we draw that from? The word of God. Paul says it very clearly. Therefore, as God's what? Accidental people? No, chosen. Therefore, as God's chosen people. John 1.34 says this of Jesus Christ. It says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. These words are said of Jesus himself. And yet we find in Paul's writing, he's saying chosen about who? Who is he saying that about? Followers of Christ. Each of the attributes listed of us in this passage, the body of Christ, is an attribute that we share with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Just as Jesus was God's chosen instrument of bringing redemption, you also are chosen by God. Therefore, as God's chosen people. This is not because we are so great, but because He is great. You're not here by accident. You're not a follower of Christ because you happened upon Christianity. You do not sit here hearing this message outside the realm of God's sovereign purpose for you to be in this building. This is because you have been adopted by God into his family. There are no happy accidents in God's economy. Everything is purposeful, and Paul teaches us right here. He says, you're what? God's chosen people. This adoption is intentional, it's purposeful, and is fully the work of God's influence through the power of the Spirit to awaken you from your sinful rejection of Him into saving faith in the work of Christ on the cross. Who here in the room dares to raise their hand and say, I take full credit for my salvation? Not me. It's all a work of Jesus. It's all a work of His redemptive purpose. Because if we think of it as an accident, then everything around us is an accident. And then we look to God and we say, man, if everything's an accident, then you're not very powerful. You're not very sovereign. You're not very influential. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't worship a God who's not influential. God influences His creation. 
And just as we are God's chosen people, Jesus was God's chosen method to bring about His redemptive plan. You have been chosen in the body of Christ through Jesus to carry out His redemptive plan. Now, there's a lot of different theories about this way this works. I'm not daring to dance in those waters today. The major is, is that faith in Jesus Christ saves us, right? Can we all agree on that? How that works out in the sovereignty of God and the will of man is a divine mystery. I have my own opinions. There's people in here that have their opinions. Let's have a good spirited debate and then continue to love each other. Does that make sense? Is that okay? But the reality is, is that Scripture does teach that it's not an accident. God is not caught off guard that you are in this room, in this place. Number two, what's another attribute that you share with Christ? You are beloved. You are loved by God. Mark 1.11 says this, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Just as God loves His Son Jesus, you are loved. I put in here, some of you need to hear this today. All of you need to hear this today. God loves you. And He proved His love for you through sending His Son Jesus Christ. And then inspiring Paul's words here to say that you are what? Dearly loved. That's what the Bible says. Dearly loved. Not just kind of loved by God. You are dearly loved. Just as God loved His Son, loves His Son, God loves you because you are in His Son. You're in Christ. And the last one, you're holy. Therefore, as God's chosen people, what? Holy and dearly loved. A demon says this to Jesus in Mark one twenty four. He says, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. What? The Holy One of God. Even the demons declare that Jesus was holy, that He was from God, that He is God. We also learn the power of God within a statement like that. Have you come to what? To destroy us. Jesus is powerful enough to do that. But again, that declaration of holiness. And just as Jesus is holy, if you are in Christ, you too are holy. In His holiness. You are holy or what I would say, set apart for Jesus. You're set apart. This means that you are different. When we're saved in Christ, we're different than the way we were before. We're different than than the world system around us. We think differently. Jesus showed us His service... His leadership through service was much different than the worldly kings that asked everybody to come and bow down to them. I 
I want to add this. Just because we're different doesn't mean that we need to just be weird to be weird. Okay? Sometimes as Christians, we kind of get, like, I'm just going to be weird for the sake of being weird because Jesus has called me to be different. We don't need to be weird on purpose. Our transformation alone is, is kind of weird because it's set apart against the world in and of itself. So don't add to that. Don't be weird just to be weird. Because of what Jesus gives us personally, our life must be transformed to reflect His goodness. That's holiness being played out in your life is transformation reflecting His goodness. And it should affect our relationships with others in a positive direction. You see, we begin with Christ this morning and what He has done for you personally, and then we can build from there. What does this do for us now? And number two, relational virtue. Relational virtue. Relational virtue. The way that we interact, specifically in this context, with the body of Christ. I do believe this can be applied to every relationship that we have, though. These should be marks of a follower of Christ both in the body of Christ, in the interaction of the church, in the gathered body, in the way that we relate to each other through groups and through hanging out together, but also when we are out in our communities, when we're at a ball game, when we're out having dinner, these should also be marks of a follower of Christ. Paul says this, clothe yourself with compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are the things that Paul is saying, God's Word is saying, you should be like. That a follower of Christ, I would say, must be like. They're clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I want to ask a question. Do you have relational issues in your life? By show of hands. Everybody's hand should have jolted into the air. We all should raise our hand. We all have relational quirks and things in our life, right? I like to think of it. Everybody around here is weird except for me, right? And you should think the same way. Everybody else is weird except for me. We all have little relational quirks. But Paul guides us in saying, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Because here's the bottom line. I can't change other people, but I can work on myself. I can't forcefully make you compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. But I can be those things. And it's likely that we, a collective body of Christ, myself included, miss the mark on one, if not more, of these things, right? Does everybody own that? I own that. One other person. (laughs) So what is compassion? We hear that word. What is compassion? 
As I was reading and studying this week, some of your translations may say, I love this, the way it said, bowels of mercy. That's how compassion is defined. Bowels of mercy. Okay, so I wanted you to think deep down inside your stomach, right? What is that getting at? You feel it. You feel compassion. You feel it deep down inside of you. That's the intent of that, that word, bowels of mercy. Some of the people in the room are kind of chuckling. Like, He's talking about bowels? What's going on in here? I'm talking about deep down inside of you. That's what Christian compassion should look like, that we feel deep down inside of us. Mercy for someone else. Our stomach should, should stir a little bit. I was sharing with a group here on, on Wednesday night. I coached for a long time when I was back in California. I coached a youth soccer team, my son's youth soccer team. And I coached a couple, I, I could take three boys every year. One of them was my son. And then I took two other boys. A few of these boys I, I coached in soccer since they were six years old all the way up to 10, 11 until we moved out here. And then one of them I coached in both baseball and soccer. I was close to these kids. And when the time came that I knew I was going to be coming out here, my stomach was in knots because I love those kids. And there came a point in... God's decision to bring me here where I looked at them and I was like, man, can I do this? Is it, that's how deeply I loved them. My, my stomach was turning. Do you have that kind of compassion as a follower of Christ? Does your, do you look at injustice in the church and around our community and does your, does your stomach turn in knots? It's four aspects of, of compassion summarized shortly. A need expressed, right? So there's a need expressed. There's something set before us. Compassionate people respond in mercy towards that need. They respond in Love to that need, that's number three. And then here's the last part, and, and we often miss this. We take action that alleviates the need. So we don't just meet people's needs here as the church, but we're thinking of ways that we can alleviate that need altogether. That's why as followers of Christ, we should be looking at our community and saying, this is a symptom, this is something that's going on constantly here in, in Shepherdsville, Kentucky, a need that we need to meet as a church, but that's, that's merely a symptom. Here's the deeper issue. And a lot of times there's, there's things going on culturally that we need to address down here, and we need to love, and we need to feel deep down in our heart, Deep down in our stomach, 
to say, okay, we're going to meet that need, but we're also going to do something about that. The same in the body of Christ. There's things that go on in here that time and time again, they're coming up and I should feel deep down inside of me, what, what do I do about this thing? Oftentimes it's, or 100% of the time, it's a gospel issue. There's physical needs, but then the deeper need is this gospel issue. That's why I believe so strongly in the body of Christ ministering to the body because we know the gospel and we can use that to, to reach deep into the needs of other followers of Christ. I'm not speaking here against counseling outside of the church, what I would call secular counseling. I think it has its place and it meets a need. But in the body of Christ, there's a need for Christ-centered counseling. So there's a couple things going on here. We have symptoms of physical needs, that there's a root issue, and then there's always a gospel issue underlying that. How does Jesus fix this thing? Oftentimes it's some sort of spiritual condition that exists that somebody wants to ignore. And so how are we going to affect that? That's why I said this morning, are you going to own this text? Are you going to look at this and say, how does this affect me? Not how does this affect some person I'm thinking about across town who's not here this morning? How does this affect me? What's another relational virtue? Kindness. I would equate this to grace, being people of grace. And here's the thing, it's really easy to be gracious towards people who are like you, who think like you. But if the body of Christ is being true to what it was originally in the New Testament, which was a mixture of people from various backgrounds and cultures and economic standings and races and ethnicities and all the different differences that we have, Kindness calls us to cross boundaries that we may not have apart from being in Christ. N.T. Wright says this, Boundaries are not crossed by accident, but by intention and often at a cost. Church, it's hard to be around people that are not like you, but if they are followers of Christ, and I would say even if they're not, we need to cross those boundaries intentionally and engage both our culture and people that are different in the body of Christ with kindness. They don't have to align with everything that you think is to be right and true, but we can still be kind to them. And I say intentional because we don't just fall into kindness. You see, I fall into selfishness constantly. That's my default mode. And I would venture to guess that that's default mode of everybody else in here. We fall into selfishness, and so we need to be intentional in falling into kindness towards other people. There's a few other that, few others, virtues that he, he mentions here. Humility gentleness, and patience. Humility, be humble. 
The beauty of the Word of God to me, among many other things, is that the more I learn about this, the more I learn about God, the more I realize that I don't know everything. The more I realize that my theological system that I've bought into has holes and flaws. As long as we can agree on the majors, okay, there's major things that we need to agree on here in Scripture. But there are secondary issues that we don't necessarily have to agree on. They're not salvific. They don't affect my salvation in Christ. Those things we need to be humble enough to say, you know what, I don't have this thing all figured out. Some of you may come up and, and ask me a question. I'm going to say, you know what, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. I might need to go consult Ron Bradshaw or Daryl DeVore or Rick Ledford or Donnie Carney or somebody else in the church because I don't have that thing all figured out. I need their help. Humility. Uh, gentleness. That's another relational virtue that we have. Gentleness. Okay, I hear a lot of people say it this way. This is one, too, I want to be honest with you, I need to work on. I need to work on being more gentle. Sometimes I'm a little too abrasive in my approach. I'm a little too forward. But you'll hear people say, I just say it the way it is. You guys ever heard that statement before? I just say things the way that they are. Well, you probably need to work on that. Because God's Word says you need to be gentle. You don't need to just say it the way it is. You need to be gentle. Saying that type of statement, I just say it the way it is, it's another form of arrogance too. It's the opposite of humility. There are times where we need to speak the truth in love. That is important. But if you find yourself uttering the phrase, I just say it the way it is, then this is one that you probably need to look at and say, ooh, do I need to own that. Does that mean that we shy away from truth? No. I'm not saying that we tiptoe around issues. There's things that we need to be very direct and clear on and we need to confront. But above all, do you have a spirit of gentleness? And patience. You have a spirit of patience. Are you slow to anger with people? Again, relationships are hard. We get on each other's nerves. Are you patient? Are you willing to withhold your tongue for a second and not respond to everything that everybody says? Then Paul focuses on two things here. Our next point. Love and forgiveness. Love and forgiveness. He says this, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. He says, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is beautiful. He says this, And over all these virtues, what? Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You see, Paul, just before this, he tells us, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, 
and patience. And so we get the idea of these being articles of clothing that we're putting on. Our shirt, our undershirt, our ball cap, our pants, our shoes. But the outer garment that keeps all of these on, that brings it all together, is what? It starts with an L. It's love. Everybody say that. It's love. You guys even got the it's in there. That was good. Love is, is always the greatest virtue when we read Scripture. It's always the greatest virtue over and above all other virtues. Paul says faith, hope, and love, which is the greatest of these is what? Love. Think of it as the glue that holds everything together. If we are compassionate, if we're humble, if we're patient, but we're not loving, it means absolutely what? Nothing. Forgiveness. A, a mark of a Christian is a person who is loving and forgiving. Okay? I want to I say something about forgiveness. Because we've attached another word to, to forgiveness sometimes in our lives. We say, you should forgive and forget. And I want to I caution against that second part. Because I don't think that that's drawn from Scripture. Just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean that you need to forget what they have done to you. I'll say this to... This covers a lot of different groups, but one specific group that struggles with forgiveness because people have said you should forgive and forget is people who have been victims of sexual abuse in their lives. And I want to say to you that because Christ has forgiven us, that, that you should forgive that person, and I want, to, I want to stop there, I don't know the pain that you have gone through. I want to be clear about that. And so I know that it takes time, but I know that God's Word instructs that in all things, if you have a grievance with somebody, that you should forgive them because you not forgiving them only hurts you. Your hurt and your anger towards that person, it does nothing to them, but only burn inside of you and hold you back from the freedom that you have in Christ. And I want to add to this, that doesn't mean that you have to forget. That doesn't mean that you have to have a relationship with that person. What that means is that you can forgive and you can have closure and you can move forward in the freedom that is found in Christ alone. And so I want to empower you this morning, for those of you who have been wronged, beyond just that, in addition to that, we have to wrestle with God's command that we forgive other people because Jesus has forgiven us of much. It's all because of Him. And don't be mad at me. I'm just the messenger. I'm just relaying what God's Word is teaching. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against Somebody, forgive. 
We're not going to read this this morning because we don't have time, but in your own devotional time this week, I would encourage you to read Matthew 18, 21 to 35. I'll kind of give you a summary of what this talks about. A rich man forgives the debt of a poor borrower, right? You guys remember that story in, in Scripture? But the borrower responds in his freedom to go and what? Collect his debt from the person that owes him money. And basically the gist of the parable is, is that if you're that person, then you really don't understand God's grace and mercy at all. It's the reason why, week in and week out, we talk about Jesus Christ, we talk about His sacrifice on the cross, we talk about the ugliness of our sin and the need for Him to go to the cross for us is so that we can be reminded that we really aren't that great and we have been forgiven of much. Because the result of that is what? That I can look to somebody else and I can say, you know what? I forgive you for what you have done. Again, you don't have to forget. If a person has gossiped about you, if you have confided in them and shared knowledge with them and they have gone and gossiped and shared that with other people and they have hurt you, you can forgive them, but you don't forget, like, hey, I can't go back to that person and talk about stuff again. Does that make sense? You see how this applies to us? Love and forgiveness. Remember what Christ has done for you, and it affects us so greatly. His grace and His mercy affects us so greatly in the way that we live our life. And I promise you this, it is so much better than bearing that burden of unforgiveness day in and day out. I tell you as a person who has struggled through having to forgive people, I've gone through some crazy relational stuff in my life where I have had to meet with somebody and forgive them and own myself too because I own stuff in this situation, own what I had done as well. And it was an incredibly freeing experience because you know what? I took back control. I wasn't just a victim of what they had done to me. I was in control because I had forgiven them, I had let it go, and now I can walk forward in His grace, and His mercy, and His love, and His compassion, and His kindness, and His humility. Remembering the price that He paid for me on the cross. Number three, corporate virtue. I added to that the church. Corporate virtue. Now, I want to be clear if you've got to write a note down, because you might go back to your notes and say, why are we talking about corporations and church? Okay, when we talk about the corporate body, we're not referring to the business world, but this is the corporate gathering of God's people. It's the local collection of God's people. We are corporate in that. Does that make sense? Okay, it's not, we're not talking about the business world. We're talking about the church. And so, how does this passage apply to the church? Paul teaches us. Colossians 3, 15 to 17. He says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to what? To peace. And be thankful. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Peace in the body of Christ should reign above all other things. We should be a peaceful people. And so we need to ask this question, am I bringing peace to this body of Christ? Do I bring peace or do I bring trouble and dissension and disunity? I need to ask this question when I'm going to bring a grievance. If it's not that big of an issue, is it going to bring peace? Because my greatest concern is not my personal grievance, but the body of Christ. Am I going to bring peace to that? Another virtue of the church that we learn from this passage is the teaching of God's Word. Plainly and clearly. Verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. We do this through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Singing to God with what? With gratitude in your hearts. Our preaching should focus us on Christ. The center of God's, of the teaching of God's people should always be the centerpiece, which is Jesus Christ. Out of that flows all transformation, all application in our life. Our song should be focused on sharpening our minds on the truths of God's Word by bringing glory and honor to His name through music. And I think we do that week in and week out here at this church. You heard it this morning. We brought glory to God singing about what He has done for us, His redemptive plan for us, and proclaiming very clearly in the last song that we sang that He is what? Holy, holy, holy. Here's another, another thing. It says, with gratitude in our hearts. There should be a spirit of gratitude in the gathering. And here's the thing, I feel that. After we preach and after people receive communion, I see people's hands being raised, people singing, declaring God's Word through song, grateful for His redemption. We should be moved And I'm not just talking about pulling at the emotional heartstrings, but we should be moved within the core when we hear what Jesus Christ has done for us and when we sing of His glory, we should be moved. Our hearts should stir. We should be moved by the preaching of God's Word, by singing to Him, praises to Him, not to us, Praises to Him. 
And the ordinances, we should be moved. When we come forward and receive communion, we should be moved by that act. That Christ has invited us in to be confronted with His sacrifice week in and week out to be confronted with what He did on the cross for us. We should be moved by that. We should be moved when someone makes a decision for Christ and they climb in to this baptistry and they're placed under the water signifying their death to sin and brought out of the water signifying their new life in Christ. That should move our hearts. I have a hard time when someone gets baptized not breaking down and crying every single time I see that. Thinking about the angels above rejoicing as another is one to the kingdom of God. We should be moved by those things. Paul instructs in, but we want to create boundaries here too, because Paul instructs in his letter to the Corinthians that we should not play into emotions. He says very clearly, we preach Christ crucified. He is the stumbling block. But, there should be a stirring in our hearts. We should not just stand here like this singing in the morning. When God is working in my heart, my hands can be lifted up. My heart can be stirred. My voice is lifted up. I can look to the sky and I can praise God. There should be a stirring in our hearts towards love and affection towards not only Jesus, but those who are around us. Hear my heart. I love you guys. I love this church. I love the people that sit in these chairs each and every Sunday. Even though we are different, we come from different places, I love you because you're my brother and you're my sister in Christ. And I love you because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Marva Dawn says this, It's the importance of us keeping things plain and clear. She says this, If people are saved by a spectacular Christ, will they find Him in the fumbling of their own devotional life or in the humble services of local parishes where pastors and organists make mistakes? You see, it's important that we keep the main thing the main thing. That's Jesus. Will a glitzy portrayal of Christ nurture in new believers His character of willing suffering and sacrifice, uh, sacrificial obedience? We don't want to make promises to people that Jesus is what He's not. He's the Savior of the world. He forgives sins. He's probably not going to fix all your money problems. He may not fix the disease that's ripping apart your body, but He loves you and He has forgiven you of sin and He has brought you into relationship with Him and He has given you a purpose for this life that is far greater than anything that the world gives you. She says this, Will it create an awareness of the idolatries of our age and lead to repentance? We want to be very clear about who Jesus is. 
And does a flashy hard rock soundtrack bring people to a Christ who calls us away from the world's superficiality to deeper reflection and meditation? We want to reflect on that each and every time we worship God. Does this bring glory to God? And hear me clearly, I'm not calling out the music that we play here at North Bullet Christian Church. Greg and his crew do a phenomenal job bringing us to worship God each and every week here. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, it's time to get away with the rock guitars and all that stuff, and we can bring back the old hymns. Well, when those were first being written, they were being played to old bar tunes. Do you realize that? What we have to look at in the content of our music is, does this bring glory to God? Those old hymns bring glory to God, don't they? And there's a lot of new worship music that brings glory to God as well. And as a mixed body of Christ, we can bring all of those things together and we can sing holy, holy, holy. And we can sing whatever new Hillsong song or Chris Tomlin song that has come out that stirs our hearts towards God to bring Him glory. Amen? Amen. It's the body of Christ coming together. A little bit of this and a little bit of that as long as it's all pointing to who? Not me and what I want, but it's pointing to Jesus Christ. Keep it simple. It's all about Jesus. It's about our response to Him and how that response affects our relationships. And one way in just a few moments that we respond is to remember His sacrifice for us through communion each and every